of that is under the complete rule and jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just important in my life, he's Lord of my life. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. We're going to start out this morning with a quiz. And what I'd like you to do is to participate with the people that you are watching live with right now. So parents, if your kids are watching the sermon with you right now, I'd like them to first answer the question and then everyone uh, throw out your answer. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you four statements and I want you to kind of participate and say it's either true or it's false. Okay, so you kind of yell it out. Let the kids do it first. True or false. Okay, are you guys ready? Here we go. We're going to start with the first one. The first statement is this. Christians believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that true or is that false? Christians believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, let's do our second statement, and I want you to answer, yell it out, true or false. Number two, God the Father is more divine than Jesus. Just go ahead and yell it out, true or false. God the Father is more divine than Jesus. All right, here's our third statement. You guys yell it out, true or false. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. Is that true or false? The Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. All right, and here's our fourth and final uh, quiz statement. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Is that true or is that false? Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. All right, so let's see how you did. We're going to kind of tally up the results of this quiz. And I just want you to know that if you answered true for any of these statements, you are wrong. All of these statements are false. Now, what's really sad is that Ligonier Ministries did a survey in 2014, 2016, and 2018. And they found that 30% of Christians believe that the Father is more divine than Jesus. But the stat that was most disturbing was that 78% of Christians, that's more than three out of four, believe that Jesus was not divine, but was a created being. Ligonier Ministry says, these results show the pressing need for Christians to be taught Christology. There is a general lack of teaching today on the person of Christ, a doctrine for which the early church fought so hard. This is really scary, church. This is telling us that three out of four Christians believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by the Father. Now, that is a view that didn't originate with our generation. That actually originated by an ancient heretic by the name of Arius. Arius was actually condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and again at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. But Arius's view, his view of Jesus, was a view that echoed a sentiment held by the Gnostics. And this view was that Jesus was demoted from a place of preeminence. And so here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul, who, remember, he's writing from house arrest. He, you could say he's quarantined to a home in Rome. 
He's writing to them to share what many people believe was a first century Christological hymn or a poem that the early church would recite. And so he's reciting this poem in Colossians chapter 1 to describe Jesus' preeminence. And so as we study this poem, this hymn together today, what we're going to see is four ways that Jesus is preeminent. And so we're going to jot them down right now. Please take notes as we look over this outline. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus is the preeminent representative. And we're going to see that in verse 15. We're going to see how Jesus, secondly, is the preeminent creator in verses 16 and 17. Thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus is the preeminent authority in verses 18 and 19. And finally, number four, we'll see that Jesus is the preeminent mediator. So that's our outline today. Let's begin with that first idea of Jesus being the preeminent representative. Look in your Bibles at verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, do this for me. If you've got a Bible in hand or you're able to, to circle this word or highlight it, do that for me right now. Circle or highlight the word image. That word image is the Greek word icon. It's spelled E-I-K-O-N if we were to transliterate it into English. But that's where we get the word icon from. So the Greek word icon actually is translated in image or a figure, a likeness, or a representation. When we think about an image or an icon, what is it? It's actually something that corresponds back to the original. It gives us a picture of the brand itself and it allows us to kind of identify with that brand with just one simple image. So if I were to do this, if I were to show you a few icons of some companies, just by showing you the, the picture, the image, you'd be able to kind of identify maybe even a feeling or an emotion or some type of representative of that actual icon back to the original brand. So here, let's do this together. Here's a couple icons, and I want you to think of what you think of with that brand. Here's the first one. What do you think of when you see the Mercedes-Benz logo? A lot of people think that's the peace sign. It's not. That's the Mercedes-Benz logo. And what I think of is envy. People think, I wish that I drove that car. I don't wish that I had the car payments on that car, but I wish I had that. Envy. How about this logo, this icon? Many of us see this icon, and we immediately think of wonder or magic. And that's because Disney, as a brand, just by seeing the name, the logo, the icon, it invokes that idea of childlike wonder. Then, of course, there's this brand, this icon. And this icon, of course, represents addiction. <laughs> this is the Starbucks logo where many people get their caffeine cravings uh, satiated. But did you know that research has shown that children often will recognize this logo, this icon, the McDonald's logo, even before they recognize their own name written down on a piece of paper? So what Paul is saying in this verse is that Jesus is the image, he's the icon of the invisible God. So when we look at Jesus, we see the exact representation of the Father, of his being, the radiance of God's glory. We see the essence of Jesus being fully God, and yet his external representation was that of a man. Jesus is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. At one point, Philip said to Jesus in John chapter 14, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus answered him and said, don't you know me, Philip? I've been with you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me 
has seen the Father. In other words, I'm the exact representation of the Father. I am the icon of the invisible God. One person said, if Paul meant that Jesus was merely similar to the Father, he would have used the ancient Greek word, which speaks merely of similar appearance. The stronger word used here proves that Paul knew that Jesus is God, just as God the Father is God. It means that Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father. Now, the Bible doesn't just describe Jesus in that way here in Colossians chapter 1. There's many other verses. You can jot some of these down. John chapter 1 verse 18, uh, the apostle John says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who's at the Father's side, that's Jesus, has made him known. Jesus has put on display the personal work of the Father in himself. A few verses earlier than that, in verse 14, John tells us that the Word, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory. Here it is, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen, we've beheld with our eyes, the image of the invisible God. Well, even the writer of Hebrews in chapter one, verse three says the son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is a very confusing phrase when we first read it. If we don't understand the Greek, we can be led to believe that this is saying something that it's not. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses have taken this phrase and they've taken it to mean something different. They would translate this as first created. And the reason they do that is because that view is consistent with their theological presuppositions, which is where you come to the Bible with a kind of a pre- a preconceived idea of what it says. So when you read a verse, you go, this is what I think that this says before you read it. Instead of letting the text speak for itself and then that informs your beliefs, you come with your beliefs to the Bible and kind of make the Bible fit into your beliefs. So they believe that Jesus is a created being. And so we know this, of course, from the scriptures, Jesus is not created. He has always existed uh, and he is fully God. But that hasn't stopped the Watchtower organization, from claiming that he is created. But see, guys, there's a Greek word for first created, and it was used around the time that Paul's writing Colossians. So if he wanted to say first created, he could have. In fact, the word for firstborn um, that we find right here is the word prototikto, which gives us firstborn, and that's what Paul uses. If he wanted to say first created, he would have said protokizo, but that's not the word that's used here. Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Well, what does that mean then? Well, the biblical idea of the firstborn is really interesting. Essentially, it means the one who has preeminence. And, and so in Psalm 89, verses 20 and 27, it says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. I also shall make him my firstborn. That's in the NASB. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I was there for the first and second Samuel series at the Life of David. I was there with Pastor Pilgrim teaching, and I remember that, that particular study where Samuel the prophet's there, and there's Jesse, the father of David, and all of Jesse's sons were lined up, and David, the lastborn, was not even considered, and yet he was the one whom God had chosen to be the king, none of the older brothers. So how can Psalm 89 
say that Jesus or that David was the firstborn? How can Psalm 89 say that? That's because this idea of firstborn has nothing to do with the order of birth, but with the order of priority. You see, this title that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1 is a title of preeminence. What he's saying is that Jesus is the firstborn over every creature. It's not that he's the first, and then there's a second, and then a third, and then a fourth. What he means is that he is above all. And so Paul is getting the point across that Jesus is above all of creation. He is above all other creatures. He is chief. Jesus is the preeminent representative of the Father. He's the image of the invisible God, and yet simultaneously, Jesus is the preeminent representative over all mankind. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now, let's look at the second aspect of Jesus' preeminence. Look at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christians worship the Trinitarian God, the one God who's in three persons. So Father, Son, and Spirit were active in creation. The Bible says in Genesis, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So even though Father, Son, and Spirit were active in creation, it says in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. But it says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So therefore, even though the Father and the Spirit were active in creation, the Son was the one through whom all things were made. So Jesus was the active agent in creation. He created all things in heaven and on earth, everything that's visible and everything that's invisible, everything that is spiritual and everything that is tangible. So not only is Jesus the agent of creation's existence, all things were created by him, he's also the object of creation's worship. All things were created for him. Just think about that, guys. All things in the universe were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Everything. Not only the angels in heaven, but every sunset here on earth. Every creature in every ocean, every star in every galaxy, everything that we see in creation, your labradoodle, the fleas that live on your labradoodle, the nitrogen cycle, the left atrium of your heart, the mimic octopus, the telegraph plant, from the largest of every star that we have observed in the visible universe, like Canis Majoris, to the very smallest creature that we know of, the tiniest pygmy shrew. Jesus created it all, including every single one of us in our mother's womb. You were created by him, and you were created for him. Everything in this creation was created to give glory to a great God, in and through Jesus Christ. He's the agent of our creation, and he's the object of our worship. Now, verse 17 tells us that Jesus is before all things. Now, that's an interesting phrase. So that means he existed before there was ever a world, before there were stars, planets, or life forms. Before there were even angels, he existed. He's eternal. He's always existed. He's self-existent. We call this the aseity of God. Aseity just means an existence that originates from itself. 
So just think about that. Jesus is uncreated. So the redemptive plan of the Father didn't begin with the cross, but it doesn't end with the cross. It began even before Genesis chapter 1. There was a God who surpassed any created thing. It wasn't like God and emptiness existed because emptiness is a thing. Before anything existed, there was God alone. From eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, living in perfect, holy, relational community. That fellowship existed there. It wasn't that God created because he was lonely and needed a friend, and so he, let me create man because I'm lonely and need a buddy. God already had perfect community and that fellowship, that koinonia within the Trinity itself. So Jesus didn't come into being when Mary gave birth. That was when he was born, and about nine months earlier, he was incarnated. But that's, when, that's not when Jesus came into being. He has always been. The Bible even says in Revelation 13, 8, that he was slain even before the foundation of this world. But see, it gets even more interesting in this text when Paul says that in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Okay, I'm not going to go science teacher on you, but this is a very interesting statement in light of the discovery of atoms in the law of electricity. There's something called Coulomb's law of electricity, and it states that like charges, if they're both charged alike, they will repel one another. So positive charges repel, and opposite poles attract. And, and don't worry, I'm not making a judgment call about your marriage. I'm not saying opposites attract. We're talking about science here. So a positive and a negative charge are attracted to one another. And that's what we find in electricity. We, we have alternating currents in our motors. We have Coulomb's law of electricity. So we have these repelling forces of like charges. And if you've done this, if you hold two magnets up, the two positive forces will push one another away. And so when you get down into nuclear science, at the center of every atom is, of course, the nucleus. And then if you remember in school, there's something at the center of that nucleus, um, and that is protons and neutrons. Protons are positively charged, and neutrons are, are not negatively charged. They are neutrally charged. And then kind of floating around the atom out here in space, around the nucleus, is this um, this cluster of these different particles known as electrons, and they are negatively charged. Well, what science is trying to figure out, and they still have no clue about, is why at the center of the nucleus of every atom, why do the protons that are positively charged, why do they hold together and break, seemingly break the Coulomb's law of electricity? They seem to be breaking it. Why is that? Scientists don't have an answer. They've tried to come up with this crazy idea that it's atomic glue, but they really don't know. But Colossians 1.17 tells us the answer. The answer is that in him, all things hold together. Just look how many times the word all is mentioned in this text. It's a reality that every cell is held together. And if just for one moment, Jesus were to let go, just for a split second, the whole universe would go up in one big gigantic bang. Just think about that for a minute. The same man who walked the streets of Nazareth and who washed his disciples' feet is the one who holds all things together. Jesus is preeminent. He's supreme above creation. And we need to understand that that means that everything in creation is thus dependent upon him. If we have three boxes, we have the creator, and then we have creation, we have no need for the third box because there's nothing that would fit in that box. Everything is either creator or creation. So Jesus is not a creation. He's not one of the pieces of creation. He is the creator. 
And essentially, that means that by definition, everything in that second box is now dependent upon the creator. So the ultimate act of treason is to sever your dependence upon that creator and to act independently of him. When a cell in our human body does that, when it begins to act independently of the rest of the body, we call that cancer. When we are, as created things, participate in lawless rebellion against God, we call that sin, and it leads to condemnation. So Jesus, Paul says, is the preeminent creator. Now let's look at this third section. Jesus, number three, is the preeminent authority. Look at verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so note with me that Jesus is the ultimate authority in the church. Now, elsewhere, Paul likens the church community, the church family, as a body. And we will be doing a series at some point in the future. We were going to do it before this whole quarantine thing, but it would be really hard to encourage you to be a part of the body of Christ as we're segregated and separated from one another. But we will be doing a series at some point to show us what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and how to use our gifts in the body um, and how to get involved. Um, But here in Colossians, Paul is stressing who the head of the body is, and the head is Jesus. Now, throughout church history, there has been and there always will be people who want to insert themselves into that place. They want to be the authority. They want to be the head of the church. You may have been a part of a church where someone with with misapplied authority began to rule over instead of the way Jesus designed church leadership, which, which is to serve under. Instead of serving under the church, they ruled over the church. And they didn't really allow Jesus to truly be the head. But the scriptures are clear that the pastor elders are simply under shepherds to the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. And from the head, we obtain knowledge, guidance, and control. I I don't see very many successful headless people in the world today. Listen, I am not the head of this church. The pastor elders are not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of the church. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be, here it is, head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, contextually, this idea of head, right here in Colossians, can also mean a description of Jesus being the source He is the beginning, like we would say we're at the head of a river. So Jesus is the head spring. He's the beginning. Why? Well, Paul says, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19 tells us that all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily. In the next chapter, we'll get to it in a few weeks. Paul says this in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, we'll dive into that word fullness when we get to it in the next few weeks in chapter 2. But for the sake of this text, Paul is just reiterating the fact that the Father was very pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. So just note with me from the Great Commission to other passages of Scripture, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. All authority. He's the preeminent authority. He's higher than any 
authority that a husband has over his family. Jesus's authority is higher than any teacher has over a classroom, than any principal has over a school, than any policeman has in his jurisdiction, than any judge or governmental overseer has in the community that they have leadership over. Jesus is the preeminent authority. And one day the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess from Bill Gates to Bill Clinton, from Spurgeon to Stalin. Every created knee will bow before Jesus as the supreme authority and will confess that Jesus is Lord. What a devastating blow that this truth would deal to the Colossian heresy, to this Gnostic influence. They taught that Christ was just a lesser authority. He was just a demigod with kind of a a host of other angelic influences in the mix. Oh, Christ was a good example. He was a necessary link on the chain toward God. But see, there's other greater links that you go to beyond Jesus. You kind of just graduate beyond Christ to more fullness. And Paul shuts down that entire notion, all that heresy with this emphatic assertion that Christ is absolutely preeminent. And he says, no, Christ himself is all the fullness that we will ever need. Now we're going to see how Jesus's preeminent authority will impact us practically in just a moment. But before we get to that, let's look at our final section. Number four, Jesus as the preeminent mediator. Look at verse 20. It says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So let's take our pens or highlighters. Let's circle or highlight that word reconcile. Reconciliation simply means to exchange hostility for friendship. It it pictures a total, complete, and full restoration of a relationship that prior to that had had hostility. So in a courtroom where two parties were at enmity, this was the strong Greek word that would be used to describe a thorough, complete restoration of these two parties. Now, it's not that God needs to be reconciled to us. He's not a party that brought offense to us. It is we in our natural state who are at war with God, according to Romans 8, 7. You see, Ephesians 2, 3 tells us we were by nature children of wrath. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So the reconciliation is God bringing reconciliation to us through Christ. Prior to that, though, we were enemies of God. And no man can reconcile a sinful humanity with a holy God, unless that man was both God and man. Now, the Bible reveals to us that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator is simply a go-between, a negotiator. They occupy that middle place between the two parties. And so you go to a mediator when you need something agreed upon. And who else could mediate between sinful humans and a holy God than Christ who put on human flesh? Who else could appropriate divine grace other than the one who is perfectly divine himself? And so the Bible tells us Jesus is the mediator, but it wasn't Jesus's incarnation that exchanged our hostility with God's favor. It wasn't Jesus's example that brought reconciliation. No, it was his death on the cross. Notice that Paul says he's made peace by the blood of his cross and he reconciled to himself all things. Now let's not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. This is not universal salvation. Some have taken this small little verse here in Colossians and have made a big doctrine out of it, a big false doctrine. 
And that's what a lot of cults and false groups do. They take verses out of context and they make them say what they don't say, even as the rest of scripture contradicts those bad interpretations. So as Orthodox Christians, we flatly reject the absolute false heresy of universalism, which teaches that all men will be saved. Okay, that's a direct violation of multiple verses that we find throughout the entire scripture that speaks of God's wrath against sin and his judgment for the fallen angels and the unregenerate. Here, Paul is saying that Jesus will reconcile those things that are reconcilable, things that are on earth and things that are in heaven. Notice that he doesn't say those things that are under the earth. In another sense, you could say that one day all the redeemed and even the unredeemed will acknowledge at the end Jesus' sovereignty. They will acknowledge that he's Lord. And so in that sense, there will be a sort of reconciliation. They will be and are at war with Christ until the very end. But in the judgment, all will be brought to their knees and surrender. And the means of absolute reconciliation, Paul says, was simply the blood of the cross of Christ. Reconciliation means removing the barrier between God and man, and it opens the potential for a new type of relationship between the two. And that's what you and I have been given because of Christ. Jesus is the preeminent mediator. You cannot mediate for your own sin. You may have someone that you love, and you're just thinking, if I could only step in and mediate for their sin, if I could just kind of intercede and plead for mercy and that God would grant them mercy because of my mediation. The problem is you're a sinner. And so we would need someone that was born uh, in the line of Adam and yet was without sin. And there, according to scripture, is not even one except for Christ, the son of God. Jesus alone is our preeminent mediator. Now in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples a very important question. He said, who do you say that I am? That question and how we answer that question is of eternal importance. We must come to terms with who Jesus is. Now, today you might say Jesus is just a good man. He's a created being. He was a misunderstood prophet. He was a martyr. Or we would say Jesus alone is preeminent. He, in all of the universe, is supreme. He is God. John MacArthur says, in conclusion to this amazing passage, he says, it stands to reason, I believe, that one who is first in rank in the universe, one who is the point of reference for history, one who is the agent, the goal, the forerunner, the sustainer, the governor in the sphere of creation, the one who is the head of the church, the one who is the beginning, the source, and chief one, that one has the right to the title preeminent, wouldn't you say? <laughs> wow. So today I have three questions for us to reflect on based on this powerful first century hymn that Paul shared with the Colossians. Now I want to ask you to consider these questions personally. I don't want you to think about the people that you're sitting around watching this with, like, oh yeah, dad needs to hear this. I don't want you to think about your cousin who you could maybe share this on their Facebook page and tag them. They need to see this message. They need to hear this. I want us to answer these questions for ourselves. Three application questions for us as we consider the preeminence of Christ. Number one, am I reconciled to Christ? Verse 20 says that through Jesus, God is going to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his shed blood on the cross. Beloved, are you reconciled to God? This morning, have you come to the cross where Jesus died and paid for your sin, where you are an enemy of God? 
And yet because Jesus paid the price for your redemption, you are now at peace. You're now a friend of God. We acknowledge this is not a very easy question to answer. We are dead in our sin, and yet at the same time, we love and cherish the very sin that has condemned us. John Flavel says, it's easier to cry against a thousand sins of others than to kill one of your own. So how do you see your sin put to death? Well, you repent and you trust Christ for your salvation. You ask God to reconcile you through the shed blood of his son. You grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're made new and the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify you and to change you into the image of Christ. You become part of a local body of Christ followers so you can gather and grow with them and then be commissioned to your community to share your faith with others. Now, if you've never done that, we want to help walk you through what it means to be saved. So we would ask you to contact our pastors and we will follow up with you. You can email us, you can text us with the information provided here, and we will walk you through what it means to be reconciled to Christ. So that's the first question. Am I reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ? But secondly, am I submitting to Christ's authority in the church? Paul says Jesus is the head. He's the source. He's the preeminent authority in the church. However, Jesus is not the sole authority. He has appointed pastor elders to serve the church and lead and protect the flock. He's also given us his word as the final authority on what guides our faith and practice. So if you're watching this video and you are not also submitted to a local congregation, a local body of believers, then I would venture to say that you are also not submitted to the word of God. You see, people who aren't submitted to the local church they tend to have really strong opinions and really strong interpretations on Bible passages that they're very vocal and persuasive about. But their interpretations are all about secondary issues and not primary concerns. And rather than submitting to the scriptures and submitting to God's servants in a local expression of the church, these people will divide over these little interpretations and eventually no church is suitable for them. You see, people who aren't submitted to a local church are also generally critical of any sort of leadership in the church, and they'll just rail against that leadership. They rail against that authority. Even though we're called in the body to have unity and to have fellowship and to have love for one another, those attributes come second in the mind of someone who's what I call local church rogue. Listen, you and I will never find the perfect church. If you have, don't attend it because you're a sinner and you're going to ruin the perfect church. We're never going to fully agree on every little single doctrinal issue or interpretation. If we do, if we agree on every single interpretation down to the finest points, then one of us is a clone. No, we're going to have disagreements. And we don't have to agree about everything, and we don't have to like everything in the local church, but the Bible still commands us to not forsake the gathering. The Bible commands us uh, to agree with one another in the Lord, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, to not make the leadership's job in the church a burden, but a blessing. One of the marks of not being a true believer is going out from a local congregation and not submitting to Christ's lordship. So that's the question. Am I submitted to Christ's lordship in the church? He's the head of the church in, in general, and he's the head of this church, Shoreline. So are you submitting to his authority? Are you submitting to his lordship? You see, he's placed the authority of both his servants locally and the scriptures 
to be tangible benchmarks of this question. In other words, you can't say, I totally submit to Jesus as the authority and head of the church without submitting to pastoral authority or what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the preeminent authority in the church, whether you recognize him or not. So are you submitting to his lordship? Number three, thirdly, am I giving Christ the preeminence in all things? I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say. We're not to give Jesus prominence, but preeminence. What's the difference between prominence and preeminence? Well, when we merely make Jesus prominent in our lives, that means we just make him important. Yeah, Jesus is important in my life. Maybe, maybe he's more important than any other religious leaders that I listen to. He's just one God of many different uh, beliefs that are out there, and he's kind of the most important, but, but he's just prominent. But he's not preeminent. We might make a decision and say, well, what would Jesus do? Or what would Jesus say about this? But we might conclude, you know what? He really doesn't care. He's worried about spiritual things. This is a financial purchase. And Jesus isn't concerned with my finances, just with my faith. Well, that's misunderstanding the preeminence of Christ. That's making Jesus prominent and not preeminent. We need to make sure that every decision, every purchase, every thought, every attitude, every conversation, Every website that we click on, every song that we listen to, every television show that we binge watch, every text that we type, every friendship that we maintain, every place that our feet carry us into, all of that is under the complete rule and jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just important in my life, he's Lord of my life. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, that theology must be false which puts Jesus in the second place, or even lower than that. And that experience is a wrong one, which does not put Christ always in the front. He must in all things always stand first. As we close our sermon this morning, I like the story that John Henry Jowett, the great English preacher, liked to tell about the time that he attended the coronation of Edward VII. He said that Westminster Abbey at that moment was filled with royalty. And he said there was much bowing and respect shown as nobility of high rank entered into the cathedral. But then he said everything changed the moment the king arrived. When the king walked into the room, a hush came over the audience. Every eye was upon the king and no longer did the dignitaries of lower status receive the gaze and the interest of the people. All the subjects of the kingdom fixed their attention on their royal leader. May that be the same type of attention, the same type of preeminence that we offer to Christ. And he already has it. In all things, Christ must have the preeminence and he must have it and he will have it and he shall have it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is preeminent above all things, above all creation, above the church, above our very lives. And Lord, we pray that today, whether we realize that we've made him Lord or not, he is Lord. And Lord, that we would submit to your Lordship. We would submit to your authority in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, when we have removed you from the place of rightful authority and we've put ourselves in the throne. Lord, some of us have lorded over our families. We've lorded over our employees. We've lorded over other Christians. Forgive us. God, we cry for mercy. We're not acting in a way that submits to the head. And so we pray that we would, in all things, give Jesus glory. And we thank you that we are made 
on purpose for a purpose that we ultimately were created by Jesus and for Jesus. So he is the purpose for our very existence. So we give you all the glory and praise. Lord, during this time, during this quarantine, it's very difficult for us to spend time with you sometimes, even though we have more time. We pray that we would spend that time every morning just dedicating the day to you, setting apart the first fruits of our morning, giving every thought, every attitude, every action, the place of really bowing at your feet and putting you in the place of preeminence. So forgive us, Lord. Help us to surrender to you today. We wave the white flag and we say you are Lord of of our lives. We thank you and we worship you and we praise you for your goodness. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, I want to close today with uh, just a uh, kind of a closing commission uh, from Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. And then he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So may we go out this week blessing the Lord and submitting to his dominion in our lives because he already is Lord. He's not Lord of some, he's Lord of all. So love you guys. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Stay tuned to our website for some important announcements as we continue to update you and may God richly bless you guys. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.